welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Paul Oakenfold. In 2018, Oakenfold has done all there is to do as a DJ. He helped bring about paradigm shifts in dance music and contributed to its rise into an international concern. His hallowed 1987 trip to Ibiza helped kick off the Balearic movement, and he was in the thick of the Acid House explosion the following year. Within the space of a few years, he was one of the most famous DJs in the world. He took electronic music to the masses with a huge array of remixes and opening sets for superstars like U2 and Madonna. As Matt McDermott found out in this conversation, despite his myriad achievements, Oakenfold still got the competitive spirit that drove his career to such giddy heights. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Paul Oakenfold is up next. We are at Paul Oakenfold Studio, somewhere in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, we've got about 10,000 LPs and 12 inches on the wall, a few guitars, and um, a lot of movie posters. Um, and from what I understand, you've had you've had something to do. Yeah, every poster on the wall I've either scored or done cues for. Some familiar, some not. I'm sure to you. Uh, two DJ consoles. Um, and obviously the new denim setup and uh, a few uh, bits and bobs of memorabilia that I've been presented with or gold discs when I toured on a Jägermeister transmission tour. It's what it is. I suppose it's part of mine. There's all the awards I won up there. That's another story. It's certainly got character, this room. And you have a lot going on currently. You've just had a graphic novel come out, The Wonderful World of Perfecto. Uh, last year, you were up at base camp at Everest. You also launched the EM Awards. Um, wow, last year was a busy hunt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, how, how what's your uh, what's your day to day like? Are you are you still uh, working twelve hours a day, fifteen hours a day? Yeah, I mean. Just to break it down, the, the Mount Everest Base Camp uh, event was something that um, a friend of mine came to me a few years ago and asked me if I would ever contemplate um, DJing at Base Camp Mount Everest. And I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, that sounds amazing. Not really realising what it entailed. And then once we... <laughs> We got permission because it's a national park. You, you can't just go to base camp and put on an event. Um, we didn't want to do that. We, we certainly wanted to do it in the right, respectful way, um, which was get permission, raise money for the local people who live on the mountain and, uh, and bring something to the table. And that's something that we brought to the table was... Um, recording these uh, musicians, uh, recording these monks from these monasteries en route and um, making a track through electronic music. Could we merge these ancient sounds with today's modern uh, electronic sounds? So we set off to do that, to raise money, to do an event and to record a, a track. And that took a process of 
three years uh, to actually get it over the finish line. And then we didn't know if the equipment would work at nearly 18,000 feet. And I didn't know if I'd work. I mean, I'd never hiked or, or, or slept in a sleeping bag. So suddenly, be careful what you wish for. You've got to prepare, train, work out. And uh, we pulled it off. We, we, we actually did it. And, and it was a huge achievement personally. We raised a lot of money for children and music. Um, and we shot it in VR. We made a documentary that will be out sometime uh, this year. And it was a, a, an amazing achievement that took a long, long time to do, as was the awards. I mean, the awards, I felt that in this space, we're, we're coming of age, we're 30 years old. Club culture, as it's known today, started uh, in late 87, where everyone started to look at the DJ, everyone was focusing on him and the music that he was playing. Of course, prior to that, there was electronic music. The DJ was in the corner. No one was really taking much notice of him. Um, of course, there was, a, you know, obviously bands and, and artists making electronic music, but club culture, as it's known today, uh, came around in, light, in 87. So I felt that, along with a few of my colleagues, that it was the right time to come together and... and uh, pull off an electronic music awards for, for our space and, and that's what we did. Um, so we're moving it into this year, uh, which would be the second year. And, and, and it's all about supporting the community, being part of the community and, and uh, we've had great support from everyone. So the electronic music awards, the inaugural edition was last year and um, you honored originators like Juan Atkins and basically threw a party in downtown L.A. Um, but one of the things you said there um, in 87, that's when dancers stopped looking at each other, started looking up towards the stage. And that's that's something that has continually happened throughout your career to, to varying extents, um, you know, being on the main stage at Glastonbury, being on the main stage at Coachella in your initial nights out at the Paradise Garage, do you think anything's missing with that relationship? Yeah, I, I mean, look, the, I, I think if you're a music fan and you're a fan of DJs, when you are at Paradise Garage, you're in awe of the DJ. But he's miles up there, you can't see him. And, but the general crowd are dancing and we're looking at one another. What changed was that suddenly the whole dance floor focused on the DJ and all looked in the same direction. 30 years later, we're doing exactly the same thing, but we got a telephone in our hand and we're either turning around and going, look at me with the DJ in the background, or you're taking a picture of the DJ. That was the big shift that really brought it home to, I think, a community worldwide. Um, in terms of being a DJ and listening to other DJs, I've always looked up to the DJ, or even if I'm at a bar talking to you, I'm listening. I'm listening to everything, you know, I mean, because you're a, you're a fan. Um, now, I'd say the biggest change is that, is technology has made it easier for everyone to be a DJ. And a lot of DJs are in it for the wrong reasons. They're in it for the obvious reasons of fame, fortune, and girls. Back then, there wasn't none of that. It was about all that music that you see on that wall. It was that passion. There wasn't no money in it. It wasn't a career. You made a career out of it. I studied to be a chef. I'm a, I was studying to be a fully qualified French cuisine high-end chef, and then I was doing that because that was the love and passion. There was no, no money in that. Um, and I'm very fortunate that I made a career out of that. I think that's to, your, to, to what you said earlier on was probably why I'm the first in, in, in a few things is because 
there was no there's no one for me to look up to. There was no one doing comics, doing Everest, playing on main stages, working with you two on Madonna. There was no DJs doing that, and I never felt that we should just live in a nightclub. I don't, you know, DJs are hugely talented individuals who produce music for other people, produce their own music. I mean, look at some of the greatest uh, producers out there, Calvin Harris. He's one of the greatest producers. He's had as many hits in Britain as the likes of Elvis or the Beatles. I mean, it's, it's incredible when you when you really break it down and look at the facts, how some of these, you know, Dre started as a DJ. You know, what I mean, if you if you watch that 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 movie uh, Straight Outta Compton, which I did, I wasn't aware that Dr. Dre started as a DJ. You know, and he's one of the greatest ever producers. So, point being, you know, I, I think with the this whole community, it's now become a global community. It felt right with the awards. Um, you know, I'm in a, a, a wonderful position where I can help give back and support. And these opportunities come along like the comic. I'm a fan of comics. I got asked if I would like to do one. And I was like, yeah, why not? You know, um, uh, and and that's really how these things come along. Um, it's not me sitting there going, wow, I want to go up to Mount Everest. I didn't even think about it. It was just, you know, a friend came to me and said, "Let's, would you ever consider doing it? And, you know, while <clears throat> there are these sort of outsized opportunities uh, where you're breaking new ground with the awards as well as the graphic novel uh 2017 was also like a back to basics year for you um a couple things that were interesting to me were on the generations compilation for instance like that's an amazing uh compilation that's you know getting down what alfredo was playing like tracks like the manual gotching edit or Carly Simon's Why, or even, you know, Born Slippy and stuff like that. These are all on a 54-track compilation called Generations that attempts to sum up uh, some of this music's importance. It seems like you're sort of giving a primer to some people. Are you trying to, is it a nostalgic thing, or are you trying to, like, show a new generation, no, this is where I come from? Uh, and that's a, a, a good question, and, and the answer is the second part of what you said. It was we were rolling in into 1987. I was inspired um, by this DJ that I came across in Ibiza, um, and it became a 30-year cycle. And I sat there and thought, well, I'd like to share that moment with the young generation that only ever read about it, uh, would never experience it and never see it and never really understand it. So I was like, well, why don't I put this down and document it? Don't put all the obvious tunes, but put the records that explained and shaped a culture and go out on that and play three hour sets on vinyl, um, on that new media player, mix it up, take you on this journey, explain, share, educate what went on. Um, and and that was the idea. And again, be careful what you wish for, because when you're pulling vinyl and you've got to carry it around airports and you're lugging boxes of it and then you're playing it and it ain't like just mixing on a CDJ or a media player where it's all locked and you just press play. You've got to really work these tunes and you're going over this spectrum of the quality of sound, the story you're trying to tell, the BPMs, the tempos are vast. There's a tremendous amount of work that goes into it. Um, Saying that, I really enjoyed it. I wanted to just share that moment. Uh, I've done it. I've moved on. This year is about 
1988 and that Spectrum sound, which is Acid House. I haven't played Acid House in years. So now I'm like trying to find all these old Acid House records, uh, which was fun. I spent a month doing that. And uh, it's good. I mean, it's not a retro set. I'm just jumping back into a few tunes. It's a lot of it's current as you came in and you could hear a lot of current tunes. But I dropped some of those old tunes in from that period because uh, especially in Britain, I mean, there's every week there's now a party based on that 19 kind of 88 sound. So to speak of that era, uh, another first that at the time people didn't necessarily know about. You, you wrote the first article about Acid House in London, Bermondsey goes Balearic. Um, I've talked with some other people about this era. This, this uh, record collector, Mark Seven, told me that early in 87, he tried to throw an Acid House party and just everybody looked at him like, what are you what are you doing you know it was still like the sole thing and then like six months later everybody had smiley face t-shirts like the the change was quick yeah because you were djing hip-hop until two and then you'd start the after hours so you so you watched the change happen and you felt like london was ready for it at the well, time i i i knew not only i uh, but a few people the change was was ecstasy that was the big change. You, you, it's difficult to take ecstasy and dance to hip hop. Um, you know, it, it's a different meaning, a different sound, a different lyric. Um, hip hop, obviously, uh, and it doesn't work with with, with ecstasy. Ecstasy is euphoric, and the electronic sound and the meaning behind it and the melody and, and the emotion and the lyric, I'll take you to the promised land. Um, lyrics like that, uh, we are, you know, positive lyrics. Um, I think that played a huge important part in, in um, that played an important part, timing played an important part. We were in a, a, a depression in the UK it was difficult for, for young people, you know, with, with what was going on with Margaret Thatcher and the, uh, who was the prime minister in England at the time. It was hard if you were a kid, and we were. And along came this music, along came this drug. As I said, the timing was there and a few people had this attitude that we're gonna change shit. That's why it's really interesting what's going on with these kids in Florida. Because as much as it's gonna be incredibly difficult to change anything in this country, because, you know, America is the land of cowboys. You grew up with guns, right? I hope they change something. And we did. Our, 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 our generation in England, we changed something. We completely went against the system, against the government, against what was going on, against the law of the land, and we changed it. And it was, wasn't easy, but we had, we had this movement that just became bigger and bigger and bigger. So much so that you'd find 20,000 kids in a field in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night and the government, the police, the system had no idea how to deal with it and they were bringing in these laws to shut it down and no matter what they were doing, there was ways and means that we would just become bigger and more more support and, and, and now look at us. We grew out of, I'm a working class guy that grew out, as many of us did, grew out of a scene in 1987 1988 and changed the landscape of British culture. It's interesting when I was talking with Alex Patterson a couple months ago for a similar exchange who played the VIP room at your club, yep. Land of Oz. Uh, that's where the orb, as it came to be, was formulated. He said, you know, the thing about those times is uh, they were great, but, it, but if, uh, if you lived through them, you don't remember much of them. 
Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's... It, but, you, but I don't know if you're meant to, because it was about being in the moment. There was no phones. There was no one running around with cameras. There was no one documenting it. It, it was freedom at the at the at the at a real moment where you were living. How difficult is it to live in the moment? How many people live in the moment and they don't think about tomorrow? They don't think about next week. Don't think about bills that they've got to pay. They are totally free, and they just want to be there. At that moment, with like-minded people, no one, no one's worrying about anything, right? So, to now say I don't remember it, you're not meant to, really. <laughs> I mean, you having this time of your life, and as strange as that sounds, that you 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 don't remember it, you because it was it wasn't about the memories; it was about being there now. As you grow older, you you know you remember certain things, but that's a, a very interesting question because I think if you asked a lot of people, do they actually remember what went on? They probably sum it up and say it was just amazing times. It you know those generic answers. It was great. It was friendship. It was love. You know, but then you just say, do you actually remember on on nineteen eighty nine on that? I ain't got a clue. <laughs> You know, and and just to reference Alex really quickly, he also had an A and R job just like you for EG Records, and you were with Rush Release, and by '93 you were playing stadiums with you too. Sort of odd, circuitous route to that, but what I wanted to say is that by the time that you were bringing Acid House to London you already had a good business head well i learned that i didn't have i didn't have it no that's not true actually uh, uh my dad taught me uh, a good lesson which i share with you, your listener and, and you and i would think it's very important um so i signed a record uh called jazzy jeff and the fresh prince um which is Will Smith. I signed it to a record company in the UK. I went in the recording studio and I did a remix because <clears throat> the arrangement of the song didn't work for the UK. And it became a hit. It became a pop hit and it sold, it went on to sell hundreds of thousands of records and I never got paid. I did the remix, I signed the record and I, and I never got paid. And I sat down with my father and I explained this situation and he said to me, listen, he goes, why do you think it's called the record business? And I sat there and I went, what do you mean? He says, it's called a business for a reason. And you're in that business. So go away and learn the business. Otherwise you're going to continually be ripped off if you don't understand the job that you're doing. And I sat down and I was like, oh my God, that's right. I'm in the record business. <laughs> so why not go away and learn about the business so I don't get ripped off? And I did. Uh, now, I'm not saying I know, I certainly don't know <clears throat> the business changes. And now you have lawyers and managers. But I, I had none of that. And my advice is... You know, to anyone who's getting into business, get a lawyer. You've got to have a lawyer, you know, to help you. As we were talking about, after the club, you become one of the first sort of touring DJs at that point. And, and then after this U2 remix, you end up behind your turntables in stadiums at that point. And I was curious about the the sets that you were playing at that time, because I was, I was envisioning these like massive opening sets for you two and Madonna, but you're, you're still playing the crowd in that instance. Oh yeah. I mean, well, look, when I've gone, I've opened for apart from uh, Madonna and you two, I've opened for uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Lenny Kravitz, uh, played huge main stages at, 
like Net Aid, which is Live Aid, Nelson Mandela, with Beyonce, and I've played a, a lot of those big events. You read the crowd, you know, you go into it when, you know, going, okay, this is not about underground electronic music. This is a mass commercial crowd that want to hear songs. They want to connect with the artist who's performing, whoever that artist is. So I would approach it in that way. I would play my remixes of uh, a Justin Timberlake or, or, or a, a Snoop Dogg or, or a, a Madonna or, you know, I would, I would play electronic music, but with all my mixes that I've done for all these different artists. Um, so you, that was the connection. That is how it would kind of work where I drop in my mix of Nirvana if I'm opening for a rock band like you too. It would be my mix of Rihanna if I'm opening for Madonna, which is more of a pop act. So I would tailor my show, but it's still all my mixes. And then I'd drop my own tunes in there. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, that, that would be my approach. That's how it would work. It helps when you have about 700 remixes as well. Yeah, I mean, and and if there's something that I haven't remixed that's a big, you know, like sense uh, situa si uh, uh, situation Rolling Stones, right? I didn't mix that, but I did a bootleg version <laughs> of it, which would, because I, I know it would work, you know, um, so that's it. You mentioned something interesting about that that f first Fresh Prince and Chazzy Jeff remix that you made, where you said, this isn't going to work for UK radio. I know how to make this work for UK radio. And that's like 1984, 1985. What do you mean by that exactly? And does that still inform your remixing now? Yeah. Um, the structure of the original was wrong. It was it, the, the hook didn't come in at the right. So there's a traditional structure with, let's say, radio music, right? Uh, and that original from Will uh, and, and Jeff wasn't structured in that way. So, because uh, it was a rap, it was a free-flowing rap. And then the sample would come in whenever. So I restructured it and, and remade the beat and the bass line more friendly for the UK market. I mean, I grew up listening, as we all do in Britain, we have one radio station that plays to the whole country, and it's a great radio station, Radio 1. So I grew up listening to Radio 1. So for me, it was all about understanding you know, structure, and it was always just there in the background listening to it. And and you still study songwriters like Burke Bacharach and like... Yeah, these. I mean, I, I've, I turned this studio into a writing suite and I really, you know, I'm dyslexic. I find it difficult to write songs, but I understand structure, arrangement, key, lyric, uh, subject matter, because I've worked with a lot of good people. Yeah, one of, one of the things that you've mentioned in other interviews is when you're working with a vocalist, you just sit there and brainstorm, what's this song actually about? And this this is what's happened with like Cher, for instance. You guys just sit yeah, down. Yeah, it, 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 it starts here. So I'll, uh, I'll have a rhythm. I'll write a rhythm that, uh, that works. Let's put it that way. So I test it in the nightclub. So you'll come in, I'll play you... This, this track, and I say, look, this has been road tested. It works as an instrumental, uh, and here's what I'm thinking. And, you know, whatever the climate is, whatever's inspiring me, whatever I feel, I'd be like, look, I'm thinking this is a subject matter. Um, and in terms of a chorus, something really uplifting and memorable with a strong hook. So then, uh, you as the co-writer and, and putting down the, the demo vocal will uh, start 
coming up with a few ideas, then we brainstorm and then we just flush it out, you know. Uh, or I may just put it on a loop and say, I'll leave it with you for 30 minutes in your own space and then I'll, I'll go up, make a cup of tea, come back down and then we, you know, we, we jump into it. Whatever that process is to make you feel comfortable in terms of a collaboration, because I've already done a lot of it because I've already done the instrumentation and played it out. So we're already halfway there with something that works. Um, and that's the benef benefits of being a DJ rather than picking up a guitar over there and starting from scratch. I already bring a lot to the table before we start. It's interesting. Uh, something that's been coming up in this interview is this will work for UK radio. This works in the club. Um, this is how you DJ to 50,000 people. It, there's, there's always this idea of like, there are these people out there. I need to make them happy. I guess on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have these kind of dour experimentalists who are like, I really want to express what I want to do. It doesn't matter if only five people are listening. Like, well, well, I, I, I'm, 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 uh, you know, I have, a, I, I have a wealth of experience and knowledge. It didn't just come. I learned that. Um, and, and I do do what I want to do. I don't think my new artist album will do as well as it could do if I made it radio friendly. My, my next artist album, I've recorded with an orchestra. I have hip hop singers on it. I have pop singers on it. I have unknown singers on it. Some of the songs are commercial, some are not. It's exactly what I want to do where I am in my life. I don't, I don't, I'm not worried if it's a hit. I'm not trying to be a pop star. I'm not concerned with even doing a lot of media or videos. That's where I am. It's very self-indulgent. Now, would I like people to enjoy it, share it, listen to it, um, and like it? Yeah, of course I would. You know, I, I, I grew up in a moment where sharing, in, in a moment in music where sharing's good. It's why would I want to write a piece of music and not play it to you? And if you don't like it, fine. You know, there's no, it's, um, I'm not that worried. If you do, fantastic. But I don't write music for just me to listen to. I like to share and give and support and help. That's who I am as a person. Um, so we shall see. Yeah. I mean, I'll play you a track before you leave. And it's pretty out there. Yeah. You won't expect to hear what I'm going to play you. <laughs> now... I don't know if anyone's going to like it, but I really like it. It's really challenging me, and it's really exciting to really push the boat. You're a somewhat interesting interview because you've had a, what I would call like Damascus moments throughout your life. The first one that you've referred to is your dad being like, you know, it's called a music business, right? Like an actual business. The second one watching Alfredo at Amnesia. Um, or Larry Levan at Paradise Garage. So there's three right there. Let's talk about Goa. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I got lost in Goa. What, what, how did you arrive there? And Through my friend Ian. Ian Paul was uh, Ian Paul was a traveler, and he came back, and he's like, this is underground scene in Goa. I'm like, Goa? India? He's like, you got to come. And Ian knew all about music. And when Ian says, you got to go, you got to go. Because Ian's on the real crisp and front line of underground music, where he was then. And I'm like, all right, you know, I'm off, I'm coming, let's go. And that's where we found psychedelic trance. And I was like, oh, my God, this is outrageous. <laughs> you know, this is 20-odd years ago. And it was just it's so exciting and so cutting edge uh, that it really inspired me. It's hard to find in this day and age things like this anymore. The world's, 
it's not the way it was. We we are all aware of that. You, you you to find something underground, different, fresh, new, exciting, is will always be difficult because we have social media that puts it out there straight away, and it's it's gone. It's not that moment. Yeah, um, how was how was being an A and R changed for you? You know, are you signing stuff off of Instagram videos? Or? No, I mean, you know, I'm not. We, we, I mean, music's disposable now. It's 25,000 dance records uh, a month uh, on just on Beatport alone. I mean, it, 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 it comes and goes. It's Unfortunately, it's not special no more. The days where you buy that album uh, with an Andy Warhol cover where you'd look at the, the, the artwork, where you'd frame the artwork, where it would be something that you would be proud of. I mean, you don't even give anyone anything physical no more. It's just online and you stream it. You don't buy it, keep it and save it. The older generation do, but that's what music's not like that now. So I'm not here to change the game. I'm here to be on the pitch playing. To go back to Goa, though, you put you put out this mix in 1994. Have you heard that? Mix? I have, yeah. And it kind of uh, presaged some of your film work to some extent, like because you know you were pulling in the Vangelis. And would you say that that trip that your friend Ian said you had to make that changed the course of your career as well, right? That, yeah. that visit. Yeah. And, and can, can you? That was an important how? moment in my career because um, I really embraced that sound. I embraced that moment, and it was really inspiring. I mean. Wherever I go, if, if the inspiration's there, I'm very lucky. Um, you know, 1999, I'm playing at Burning Man, you know. We're in 2018, and there was no sound systems when I was playing <laughs> Burning Man, you know. I mean, it, and that was an inspiring festival. Now it's a common festival uh, that everyone knows about. So I... Goa was was edgy, it was underground, it was different, it was exciting, it ticked all those boxes that really wanted, um, I really wanted to come back and be, uh, incorporate those sounds in what I was doing at that time. And, and that sort of predicated like the rise of this trance sound at that, at yeah. that time as well. Well, it was the foundations of trance as we know it today. For sure. <laughs> 2000, you, you move over to the States in 1999, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. And at that time, this is this is another instance where you go somewhere that not many people in your field are. Like, you, you went to Burning Man that year in 99. Yeah. Um, this sort of, like, big beat thing had sort of come and gone at that point. Like that was like more like mid nineties, like 96, 97, but you find yourself in the U S and what's, what's the climate like for electronic music at that period? Oh, well, it was underground. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd come to the U S um, with a different mentality. I, I wanted to tour America uh, in the right way. So I, I just focused on being in America and, and playing everywhere. So I would go up to Alaska, to Birmingham, Alabama. I would be going to places where no one was going and playing electronic music. Um, and I would be making CDs and I'd be giving them out free in the crowd and I'd be really working it um, and laying down foundations. I was bootlegging my own mixes. You were like a missionary. <laughs> my god i've never heard anyone ever say that <coughs> oh my god something about america has stuck with you you know you've been here for 20 years at this well point. i i had no plans to live here i scored that movie swordfish um I, again if opportunities come your your way and they're really big moments in your life, it's scary, you're insecure, you don't know whether you can do it, but you've got to embrace it. Because if you don't embrace it, you may live to regret it. 
you can always go and do it and then realize it's not for you and go back. As, how has functioning in Hollywood been for you the last I've been very years? lucky that it's embraced, it's embraced me of, you know, from these films you, you see on the wall uh, to playing it on the Hollywood Boulevard to playing at the Hollywood Bowl twice. I mean, it's become my home. This is now what I call home. And when I was born in London, um, I'd certainly say, you know, I, I feel that I'll be here for the rest of my life. To get into another first, um, you, you also sort of broke into the Vegas market, like in terms of like an every Saturday yeah. residency. When t- well, I, 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 I was... I came out of all these films and I was working on doing less and less DJing and and I was getting itchy fingers. I was like, man, you know what I mean? It's it's difficult to start flying all over the world and and come back and do this. So why don't I do a residency? Because I've grown up on residencies. I was a resident Ministry of Sound, Cream in Liverpool, home in London... So I thought, if I find somewhere where every Saturday I can be, then I can work on the film in the week, and then I have my show, and I have a balance. So I started to look at, well, am I going to do L.A., New York, and Miami? And I'm thinking, well, I don't know, there's something about Vegas, and there was no no clubs going on like, like, um, like there is now. There was nothing. I mean, none of, most of the hotels didn't even have nightclubs, actually. And then I looked at what the Maloofs were doing, um, and they were a young hotel. And then we figured out a deal where every Saturday I would fly up, be the, be the resident, and the room was a big room. We could make a show out of it. Uh, no one knew if we'd get that amount of electronic fans because there wasn't nothing, no one doing that. Um, and we built it out and we made it happen and it, it changed the landscape of Las Vegas. It shaped the, the, the culture that came out of it uh, was nightclubs and electronic music and now that's what dominates Las Vegas. I mean... Uh, and we, you know, we, we, they all started to copy us, all the other hotels, and, and that was understandable because if you got four and a half thousand people there every week, people were like, well, hang on, they're spending a fortune. We want a piece of that. And these other hotels had bigger budgets, more money, bigger nightclubs, and, uh, and I'd done my stint. I'd done it for three years, and I was like, you know what, this is, this is enough now. Vegas, I've done my... Vegas thing. I know it's very commercial. You f- I feel like you sell your soul. Um, and I want to go and do other things. So I'd moved on. And, you know, and it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, you laid the groundwork for an economy where, at least for a period of time, at places like the Wynn, EDM was doing more revenue than gambling for, for, a little bit yeah. of time there. I'm sure. I'm sure. You know. Um, you know when we were doing our pool parties, I was doing uh, at the Hard Rock. I would do my Saturday night pool, my Saturday day pool parties, where we'd have four thousand people there, and then Saturday night we'd have nearly five thousand people there. We we were we were well ahead of the curve, and then everyone was doing pool parties, and everyone was doing nightclubs, and then it becomes really difficult, you know, for all of these clubs to compete. But you know, it is what it is. That's why it has to be extremely commercial, and that's why I, I was like, this ain't for me. You know, I've done my bit. Okay, so you know, you started up a Bafo Vegas residency. You played main stage at Coachella before Jane's Addiction. You did Glastonbury to 80,000 people. But then last year you were like, I'm going to Pikes. I'm playing the tiny room. Yeah. You know, and, and what did was... a pop-up for yeah, four weeks. Yeah. Uh, Harvey did something similar as well. Like what... Obviously that place is steeped in the lore 
yeah. of island mythology. But uh, how was that? It was great. It was it was free. It was guest list. Um, go online, uh, register, and come along. And you know, we, we, it got a little bit too crazy though, because because we ended up having like a thousand people, <laughs> and you know, it's, it wasn't meant. It, it wasn't meant to be that, that crazy. Um, but I said to Alfredo, I said, listen, I'm going to do a pop-up. I'm going to make it free. It's about, for one moment only, um, This the, the crowd that comes, whether they've seen you or me or they haven't, they can hear this music that inspired us based on that um, that mix compilation generations. So Alfredo, I'd like you to play the music that inspired me when I stood there looking up at you. Uh, I'd like you to do the the same. Play that play that moment just so people can come and go. Oh wow, that's what it was all about. That's what it was like. Uh, and that's. That's what it was. Uh, that's why it was so great. That's why it was such a an incredible, wonderful moment. Because um, we're never going to do it again. I just wanted to do this little pop up, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I heard the recording from the first night. Uh, yeah, like uh, you know, you're playing the Cure. You're playing. Yeah. You're playing all over the place. Yeah, literally all over the place. <laughs> so now, Acid House. Yeah, so now I'm not going to do it this year. I'm not going to do a pop-up. I'm going to drop some of those old Acid House classics. I'm going to do a special gig in Ibiza for Clockwork Orange where I'm only going to play that moment because I don't like going back and doing retro sets. So I will do it uh, because of everyone's asking me. So I was like, okay, I'll do it once, possibly twice, and that's it. Do you have any tips for aging gracefully in dance music? <clears throat> I think I am. I, I think that you, you, it's a difficult moment where you where you look yourself in the mirror and realize, you know, that, that you are coming towards the end of your career. I'm, I'm, I've got over that moment where I don't need to compete with a 20-year-old DJ. Um, you know, I'm I'm not the new kid on the block. I've been doing it for many years, and I, I bring a lot more to the table um, where I can help that that young uh, DJ. And I do with a lot of the artists that I sign to my record company. Um, that's where my strength lies. So you know, I I still enjoy going and playing at these clubs, but you 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 have to all of us. Not me. All of us will come to a moment in their life where they realise, all right, this is where I am. I'm changing. This is what I want. This is what I'd enjoy. And maybe that isn't what what it was, you know, 20 years ago. I've done that. I don't need to go back and prove to anyone, you know. I I, I don't want to, most importantly. In the same sense through all these accomplishments you you obviously are a competitive guy For sure yeah and so that's this has been like an interesting like philosophical change it is, it is, it is because you know you do it's a difficult moment to to take your pedal take your foot off that pedal where you are competitive you want to be the best you are the best um, and then you realize that there's a life, there's a cycle in life, and it's quite hard to deal with because, you you know, we live in a world where you want a new shirt, a new restaurant, a new this, a new car, a new... Everything's new. You want a new laptop, you know, and I'm not new. I'm not new. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it is what it is, but if you're, if you're the best at what you do and you and you work at it really hard and you bring a lot more to the table then you're you're and you're respected in that way then you are going to be around um and and that's that's the way it is Sono spiacente. <laughs> 